God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Read this bar in God's word. Say someone sins against you, asks you to forgive them, and you do. Case closed, we move on. Same person sins against you again. Maybe they do the exact same thing a second time, asks you to forgive, so you do. Same person sins against you again, asks you to forgive. You do. Then it happens again. If you're counting, that's number four. Do you forgive again? Now that's a good question. Three times becomes a pattern. Are you becoming a welcoming mat? Is that person learning anything? Are they getting over on you? How many times is it right and appropriate? How many times is it wise to forgive? What is the number of times that Christians are required to forgive the same person for repeat offenses? The teachers in the ancient world called rabbis in the times of the Apostle Matthew and the person Peter, the Apostle Peter that we're reading about, discussed this very question. And they recommended to forgive the same person three times. The Old Testament book of Amos repeatedly says, for three sins and for four. Perhaps they wrongly concluded from the prophet Amos that God forgives three times and on the fourth time God judges. But at least three times you should forgive. If that's true, if God forgives three times, they concluded that the people of God should do the same. God forgives three times, people of God forgive three times. So what if we could ask Jesus this question? Matthew wrote about the moment when Peter did. Peter asked Jesus this question. What a tremendous gift this passage is for us. Peter seemed to know that the teachers misunderstood the ancient book of Amos. It has to be more than three times. Peter also seemed to know that the teachers must have misunderstood God's best for how we should live. Three times? 
It doesn't seem enough. So Peter had heard the teachings of Jesus as he had gone around and heard his sermons and his preaching, his teaching, and for a couple of years already. And so Peter knew that Jesus was teaching and preaching and emphasizing the importance of forgiveness. Peter knew that we should be more forgiving than three times. So Peter took the number three, the standard of the day, doubled it, and then to be even more careful... To apply what he had been learning from Jesus so far, Peter added still one more. It seemed to be quite generous. Three plus three is six. Now plus one, seven. Puts the question to Jesus in verse 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? How did Jesus respond to that? The reply of Jesus to Peter not only went farther than than Peter's generous amount of forgiving seven times, but Jesus told a parable that changed our very thinking about this whole question. We tend to forget our debt to God because God's already canceled our debt, and we tend to remember the debts of others towards us because we've not yet canceled those debts. The main thrust of the parable we'll study is that followers of Jesus must forgive. Christians must forgive or cancel the debts of others. The forgiven must forgive. The main point is since we are forgiven by God, we must forgive others. Okay, how? (laughs) There's steps here. Number one, stop keeping track, verses 21 and 22. Point number two, show the same mercy. We'll uncover what that means. And number three, continue until you have forgiven at the heart level. So first, we stop keeping track. Since uh, we're forgiven a debt that we could not pay, we must forgive others without keeping track. Verses 21 to 22. Let me read those again. Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now let's look at the math of Jesus here. The math will help us understand the reason we have to stop keeping track of offenses of others against us. Peter's equation was, uh, what if I forgive seven times? And Jesus answered, not seven, but 77 times. Here he's alluding to Genesis 4.24, which tells of the unlimited anger and desire to get even of a man named Lamech. Jesus was showing the opposite of the unlimited vengeance of Lamech. The Hebrew words in Genesis 4.24 describing Lamech's grudges was 77 times. However, the Greek words here in Matthew 18.22 for the forgiveness expected by Peter is not as clear. Is it 77 times? Or is it 70 times multiplied by 7? It's unclear in the Greek. That mathematical difference is significant, you'd have to admit. 77 versus what would be 490. The first, 77. The second adds up to 490. But do you see what's happening to us as we already start to consider? Then debate maybe. Uh, 77 or 490. We're in the same debate that Peter had when he formulated his question to Jesus in the first place. Is it three or seven? Is it 77 or 490? When we're talking about various numbers, we're focused in the wrong place. With all these efforts at understanding the minimum number required of us, we're missing the point of Jesus just about as much as Peter was missing the point of Jesus until the parable comes. The point of Jesus in bringing up Lamech's getting even as an unlimited desire was to show that Peter was required to do the opposite, to extend 
unlimited forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus was teaching Peter about the character of God and what kind of behavior God expects in his kingdom. That's why Jesus tells a parable to explain that very aspect of life in the kingdom of God. After all, the parable begins in verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. It's what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's telling us a direct uh, comparison to this story of what the kingdom is like. So there's a standard introduction here to a parable. Uh, What's the kingdom like? We're told in verse 23, it's like a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Okay, well, within this parable, God, of course, is the king. He's the king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And Peter, the one bringing the question and the, the one who wants to know the answer, becomes the servant in the kingdom with whom God the king wants to settle accounts. So we have all, all of a sudden at the beginning of Jesus' parable the scene where Peter is standing before God and the final day. How will you do, Peter, when you stand before God? Is already in our minds at the very start of the parable. Our minds are supposed to think of the end of all things, about the ultimate things, about the kingdom and how we, when we meet the king, what will happen. And so we're encouraged by the parable to start asking bigger and bigger questions about the end of life about our relationship to God. Here's the question. How well will I do when it comes time for me to stand before the great Almighty in the grand settling of accounts with God, our King and Maker? And the answer given to that question is that Peter will find himself in an impossible position. Peter will be utterly unable to repay his debts to God in his own resources. It's hopeless. Look at the math. Verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And that's Peter. Owing God, as it were, 10,000 talents, brought before God, now expected to pay. And pay attention now, because Jesus the great teacher is connecting something for us that has to stay connected through the rest of our study, in fact, the rest of our lives. These two must remain connected. The vertical and the horizontal. Our debt to God and others' debts to us. We have to fuse those two together if we're going to understand the kingdom and if we're going to be able to forgive. Start with the vertical. God forgave us in order to resolve our relationship with God. Now add the horizontal and keep them connected. Our horizontal relationship to others has this new requirement now to never stop forgiving others. And so that's our first point. Stop keeping track of the number of offenses of others against us. doesn't matter if it's 3 or 7 or 70 or 77 or 490. Stop keeping track. The requirement for us is is, um, given by the Lord Jesus here, a disciple of Jesus. The requirement is unlimited forgiveness. Why? Precisely because the forgiveness received by a disciple of Jesus is unlimited. Now you say, wait a minute. You object to me. You you say, wait a minute. Unlimited. I know I'm getting older. And I know I sin every day. I sin a lot. But there has to be a finite number, not an infinite number, of sins I've committed against God. How did you get to infinite forgiveness received by me? How could I have received an unlimited amount of forgiveness from God? Here's how. 
because our God is infinitely holy and infinite in existence. So our sins are committed against the eternal being of the holy God, just as one sin against this perfect God requires that God would need to extend an unlimited forgiveness to us, God also decides not to track our sins. In order for God not to track our sins, he would have to decide not to because he knows everything. We learn from Psalm 103, he decided to take our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. He decided not to track our sins. Therefore, since the eternal God who knows all things, the eternal being against whom we've sinned, the only way he could not deal with us according to our sins is by dealing with them another way. And he has stopped tracking our sins. So our horizontal relationships then, we must stop keeping a list of offenses. If we remember the grievances, we have to clear them from our minds. Our hearts, we'll talk about at the third point, erase or delete them. Now you say, wait a minute. That means the other person gets away with it. Hear me now. You're correct. In the courtroom of your mind and heart, they're getting away with it. But there's a higher courtroom than your mind and your heart, and that is the one that really matters, God's courtroom, the courtroom of God's heart. And it's really very simple. Any sin that's covered by the blood of Jesus is forgiven before God in heaven, and they did not get away with it. No one gets away with anything in God's world, in God's kingdom, and in God's courtroom. In order for those sins to be forgiven them, the penalty for those sins was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2, 13-14. It is dealt with once and for all by God the Father and God the Son, by all of heaven. And any sin that is not covered by that blood of Jesus is not forgiven by God and they wouldn't get away with it. They'll have to face God and pay that. They don't pay the penalty to you to your satisfaction. They pay the penalty to God, to his satisfaction. And you know what that means. That's how to forgive. Let God be God. Who are we to keep track? It's recognizing an identity about ourselves that we have no right to be keeping track when we are not the king in the courtroom. We have to stop holding unauthorized courtrooms in our hearts. Stop playing God. We have to stop keeping track of offenses of others. We need to get our hearts out of the courtroom business. We need to leave the judgment business and enter the forgiveness business. And we know what that looks like? Stop keeping track of any offenses at all. That's our first step. Our second step, then, is showing the same mercy. Since we're forgiven with overflowing mercy, we must forgive others by showing them the same mercy. So verses 25 to 27, the story unfolds. The parable of Jesus unfolds. The man owes, let's say, let's use the amount $250,000, and he couldn't pay it, okay? So he and his family would be sold as slaves in an attempt to bring some value uh, against the debt. 
Hearing this, he fell on his knees and begged the master to give him time and he would repay. And instead, the master forgives the whole debt. And from here forward, I'm going to call him Mr. Scott Free. He gets to go Scott Free. Verse 28, Mr. Scott Free walked out. And he found a servant who owed him, let's say, 40 bucks. $40, okay? He walks out and he finds somebody who owes him $40. So Mr. Scott Free starts to literally choke the man who owes him $40. The other man fell on his knees. And it's the repeat scene that we just saw with Mr. Scott Free. The exact same scene. The other man falls on his knees, begs Mr. Scott Free, could you please give me time, I'll repay. You would think that Mr. Scott Free would not only give him time, but maybe even say, forgive the $40 debt because you just got forgiven of $250,000. But no. Verse 30 tells us that Mr. Scott Free put the other man in prison for the $40 debt. Verse 31, someone told the master of Mr. Scott Free. So verse 32, the master calls Mr. Scott Free back in and confronts him saying, I forgave you this huge debt. Should you not have had mercy on the other man as I had on you? That's step two. That's Peter. That's you. That's me. This is what we do. We're forgiven all this vertically, and we still turn around and hold it against others horizontally. And God confronts us. Jesus is telling us this is how it works in the kingdom. When you're forgiven all that, you're expected to turn around and forgive others. Show the same mercy to others that you receive from God. In Luke 6.36, we read it this way. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Well, just how merciful is God our Father? Well, that's simple math. However big is your sin, His mercy's bigger than that. That's how merciful God is. Big enough for you. One Sunday, a long time ago, when my family was driving to church, my very young son at the time, who's now himself in numbers, working as a CPA, uh, he turned to me and he asked me in the car on the way to church, and I'm trying to focus on getting to church and preaching, but he asked this question anyway, Daddy, what is the last number? It tells you how young he was, Daddy, never calls me that anymore. Daddy, what is the last number? I had to pull myself out of preaching mode and think about math And think about my son and how to express to him the answer to his question, which I literally didn't know. So I had to think for a minute. And I said, son, there is no last number. Good thing my wife was in the car. Uh, She can translate stuff into kids speak. And so she says, uh, whatever number you count to, there's always a number bigger than that one. And our son got really quiet and he looked out the window. (laughs) He was just thinking, there's no last number, and whatever number you come to, there's one bigger than that one. And the basic concept is really very simple. I call it plus one. How big is the mercy of God? Plus one. Mercy of God is greater than all my sin. There's all my sin, plus one, God's mercy. However many sins I mount up, the mercy of God is greater than that. Paul says it this way, Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now let's apply that to our main question tonight about forgiving. Step one was stop keeping track. Step two, show the same mercy. And you know what that means? 
It means we never give up on the other person horizontally. It means that no matter what they do to us, we keep showing mercy in response. There are times when mercy and wisdom will require you to protect yourself and get other people involved and have meetings and and so on. A lot of specifics there you understand. We're just talking about the core concepts about forgiveness. Showing mercy means you're not giving up on the other person and you're also not giving that person what his or her sins deserve. You're not giving the other person what his or her sins deserve. What do his or her sins deserve? They deserve for God to harm them. And since you're playing God, you would like to harm them. Because their sins deserve that. You're on to something. It's just not your role. Why can't I harm him or her? It's not your place to have a courtroom. It's not your place to keep track. What are you doing in this whole business anyway? It's not your place to dole out punishments. It's not your place to put someone in your personal perdition place and hurt them. God has a courtroom. God is the creator and redeemer. God doles out punishment. God has a heaven and a hell. You don't. And so this whole idea of showing the same mercy includes getting out of the role of God. Here, remember to keep our vertical and our horizontal hinged together. How did God treat you? Did God treat you as your sins deserve? No. God showed you mercy, so how must you treat the other with the same mercy? Verse 33 again. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Listen to how Paul unpacks this in Romans 12. 17 and following. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Vengeance is the Lord's. We are to get completely out of the vengeance business. Even if we don't take action on it, when I have a little vengeance movie showing in my heart, and I keep viewing the same movie of what I want to do to person so-and-so, I'm still in the vengeance business, even though I'm not acting on it. I'm thinking a lot about what that person deserves and what I'd like to do to them. And that's the vengeance business. Stop rehearsing the ways that you've been hurt and the, the ways that you'd like to respond by hurting others. Why? Because God knows that humans in the vengeance business will be overcome by evil. But humans in the mercy business will overcome evil with good. I wish that we could rewind a lot of these shootings that we're having in our country and explain this parable to them. How do we overcome evil with good? We start by performing good actions. We don't follow emotions. Rather, as Christ-like persons, we make good decisions based on truth and we show the right actions to others. We, we decide to turn the matters over to God. We 
leave it to the wrath of God, as Paul wrote in that passage. We, we decide to act as people who have forgiven, even if we haven't reached the point of emotionally fully forgiving yet. We decide to take, take the next step towards those with whom we may still be upset. They're hungry. We feed them. We don't necessarily feel like feeding them, but we feed them. We take the right steps. We decide to take another step towards our offenders. When they're thirsty, we give them cool drinks, and not with a drop of oil and no spittle in there, just a nice, clean, cool drink, a good one, right? We decide to take actions in kind ways towards them. We speak kindly to them. We do the proper things. We act as we should because we are people whose sins have been forgiven by God. And we start to live as people who are at peace with everyone, even when our emotions are still struggling. We stop rehearsing and refreshing grudges, and we're on our pathway to someday finding grace to actually let it go. How? How, preacher? How, Apostle Peter? How, Lord Jesus? By keeping our hearts and minds busy, prayerfully reflecting on the math of the cross and our vertical relationship to the Almighty God, the merciful God. We keep busying ourselves with good decisions about the right thing to do, even though we don't feel like doing that right thing. We show mercy by providing wise and loving steps of follow-through, and we stop allowing our emotions and feelings to rule over us. We ask the Lord Jesus to guide us by this parable and other passages in the Bible. We no longer let our grievances dictate how we behave towards persons. Instead, we start asking Jesus more and more, how should we behave? towards this person, and would you give me grace to do so? Well, that's not all. We have a third point, a very important third point. You have to continue until we are forgiven at the heart level. Look at the last three words of the passage. The last three words of verse 35. From your heart. What a difference from the start of the passage where Peter's coming with uh, technicalities and math and lawyer speak. How many times exactly are we expected to forgive? Is it seven? And at the end, Jesus is talking to Peter about his heart. Since in the very heart of God we've been forgiven, vertically, fuse that with the horizontal, we must forgive others from our hearts. All relationships in a Christian family will be marked by the atmosphere of forgiveness. All relationships across a church community will be shown to have this essential characteristic of releasing people from past offenses in our hearts. Those who will not forgive, hear me now, it's in the parable. Those who will not forgive are shown to not belong. I'll show it to you. Verse 28, the slave went out, grabbed others, choked others. He showed what sort of person he was. The Bible tells us, by your fruits you shall know them. By our behaviors we know people. This slave met a fellow slave who owed him a small amount of money, a few dollars. We called it 40 bucks tonight. And he erupted in anger, grabbed the other man by the throat first, and demanded, pay back what you owe. How could this be the same man who moments earlier had fallen on his knees before the great king and had been pardoned of his immeasurable debt, what we called $250,000 tonight? When you allow your vertical to separate from your horizontal, you become this man. 
When you forget the math of your relationship to God, you become the unforgiving, demanding person towards others. When your heart's not in it, you develop this huge discrepancy between the forgiveness you receive from God flowing down like a waterfall to you and your horizontal stagnant pond of refusing to get over the fact that someone did you wrong. How could you be the same person who receives the steady flow of a waterfall of refreshment from heaven and in your mind's eye have someone else by the throat making demands? How do we get at this? Let's fast forward a million years. I mean it. Literally a million years. Fast forward in your mind. A million years. You're with Jesus. Imagine him turning to you and say. Remember that especially dark season of your life when you lost all self-control and you actually stooped to saying and then he quotes what you said. And then he says, uh, remember, after that you were doing and then he describes what you were doing. Wait, stop, no. That will never happen. What I just described will never happen to you. A million years from now, Jesus will have no recollection of what you did that was wrong because he's forgotten on purpose, because he separated it from you as far as the east is from the west, because he got rid of it in his heart. You're in heaven with him, and you're with him because his heart is open to you and loves you. He would never do such a thing. Not only does he forgive officially and legal in the records of heaven, he's forgiven you in his whole being, in his heart. Your sins are truly gone as far as he's concerned. And God the Father remembers them no more. It's over. Verse 35 talks about our Heavenly Father and Jesus is the one telling the parable. It removes our questions about math technicalities. We're not to keep looking for loopholes. We're not to allow hypocrisy. We're not to fudge the numbers. We're not to attempt to put on a display for other people. Forgiveness is an attitude of the heart. You could call it humility, that I do not deserve the forgiveness I've received and so I can grant it to others, that humility. Forgiveness can't be described quantitatively at all because it's not a math issue. It's a heart issue, says Jesus. Look how he took us in just a few short verses. God's command to forgive cannot be expressed in a number, Peter. One of the blessings of reaching the heart level of forgiveness is to prevent you from doing wrong. Jesus knows it's when we are hurt that we hurt others. Christ knows that when we've been sinned against, we have an internal malice building up, just like the young boys on a playground. One boy pushes the other. What does the second boy want to do? Push him right back. Somebody hurt you. Inside you, what do you want to do? You want to hurt back. You want to push back. We have a desire to harm others and a plausible reason to carry it out according to our own twisted pre-forgiveness hearts. Jesus knows that step one of putting an end to our counting of grievances is a very hard change for us to make because we naturally keep track. You could recite for me right now the list of things that so-and-so has done to you. Our hearts naturally track with that. Jesus knows that step one is hard. He knows that step two is harder for us to show mercy to others. And he knows that step three, this heart-level forgiveness, is the hardest of all for us to do. 
It's a very tall order. And yet forgiveness is itself another one of God's wonderful gifts that he gives to us to help set us free from our own world of anger and our own bitterness and, yes, even hatred and imagination of vengeance and even violence. Let me be clear. Forgiveness includes surrendering our right to hurt someone back for hurting us. You give up that right. Forgiveness includes giving up our rights to be reimbursed or paid back for losses incurred in any way whatsoever at any time in the future. Forgiveness may include coming to terms with the fact that in this life, that wrong will never be made right in the way that our hearts imagine that it ought to be made right. It's just never going to be rectified in this life. Forgiveness says, I'm okay with that. God has higher ways than our ways and higher thoughts than our thoughts, so we accept his higher ways and we relinquish our lower ways and our lower thoughts. Forgiveness is setting ourselves free from the pain and hurt of the offenses so we don't keep fixating on it. We are set free. And forgiveness is a mountain to climb over. Jesus doesn't take it lightly here. He's given us three huge pills to swallow, three steps. But it's God's gift to free us from anger and bitterness. Three steps. Stop keeping track, show the same mercy, and continue until you're forgiven at the heart level. The conclusion is this. When you're getting tired of forgiving someone, remind yourself to fuse the vertical with the horizontal. You've got to keep them together. And start thinking about a million years from now. Start thinking about standing before the judgment seat of God for yourself. Start thinking about your relationship to God. Go vertical. Get God back in your thoughts. Get the cross back in your thoughts and connect the vertical relating with the horizontal relating and ask yourself this. You're tired of forgiving the other person? Is God tired of forgiving me? And the gospel answer is he never tires of forgiving you. He never tires of forgiving you. As soon as you start keeping track, you fail to understand how much sin we had against our holy God that's been forgiven by the merciful cross of Jesus. Abraham Lincoln was asked how he's going to treat the rebellious Southerners who were defeated and returned to the Union of the United States. What are you going to do when they come back? Mr. President, sir, what are you going to do? How are you going to treat them when they come back? They're coming back soon, sir. Do you have a plan, sir? What are you going to do with them, sir? Some sort of punishment, maybe the question expected, some sort of uh, second-class citizen or a punishment or a reacclimation plan. President Lincoln said this, I will treat them as if they had never been away. What sort of God do we have? What sort of person is God changing us into? Let me end with 11 words from the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's pray.